This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Alabama. And I'm Joe Newton. Today, our guest is the great Anne Newman, uh, the author of The Good Death, an exploration of dying in America. Welcome to the show. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you. You know, I've been reading your work, Elders in Residence. You're quite something. Uh, those are quite amazing series. What well, was the motiv- Yeah, what was the motivation <laughs> for that? Um, it's a it's an interesting story, and so much of my work has those interesting stories. Um, just how does how does a piece come about? Particularly journalism, right? Books yeah. are different. That we kind of sit on them for a long time. But the Guardian came to me. Um, last fall, uh, I guess that would be, yeah, a year ago now, and said, what's this story at the New York Times about all these nursing homes closing? Why don't you write about it for us? And I said, sure enough. Um, And I'm from Pennsylvania, so I decided to do my work in Philadelphia, not only for that reason, but also because um, in Philadelphia, um, they have one of the highest um, low-income minority population of elders in the country. Um, and you know, all of those, all of those forces come to bear on this population. And so while I was there, I was doing some work and I started talking to the people in the industry, you know, advocates who had been watching nursing homes over decades. And they were like, go back and look again, because, um, this idea that nursing homes are closing, um, the answer that most people are giving is that, the government just needs to give them more Medicare and Medicaid. So this is this is a government problem. And, you know, the nursing home industry people have been saying that for years. Mm. And this whole narrative had come up to editors throughout the media sphere because the New York Times ran an enormous article on the front cover, Jack Healy, really beautiful piece. He's a very um, um, uh, beautiful writer. And it turned out when I sat down with that article and reverse reported it, like I figured out who all his sources were and did the work. Yeah. He only he only talked to industry people. He didn't talk to workers or advocates. And so the narrative was basically contrived by the industry to say, you know, pressure government, we need more money. And so I was really piqued by this. And I um, found that, and, and these three pieces come out of it, I found that um, fraud was actually the cause of the closure (laughs) of the facilities that this New York Times reporter was covering. And he never came up with that. Um, So one of the pieces in the Guardian series uh, addresses that fraud. And the other two address the other two um, systemic problems um, that we've seen in, in nursing homes for decades. And um, one of them is the bouncing of elders from facility to facility because of Medicare and Medicaid guidance. Yes. Um, And the other is um, kind of a a conglomerate of um, poor treatment of staff, low pay, 
average nursing home workers make like 19,000 a year raising kids and, and trying to live. Um, they don't have sick pay. They're not unionized. Well, there, there are some unions in the country that are working, but it's really hard because there's no support uh, given to them by state or, or federal entities. And by the way, I did half that reporting before the pandemic. I mean, I was out in Philadelphia mm. right before um, everything shut down in New York City. Mm. Um, and, and then the other half of the reporting during the pandemic. So I was talking to um, I'm going to try to keep my going to try to keep my emotions together. But I was talking to nursing home workers and families during the pandemic, and what they experienced was horrific. Mm. But again and again, um, if the industry had better regulations, if they had worked harder to keep the patient or the resident in their center mind, as opposed to corporate profit. Um, if uh, if there had been just better oversight of this entire industry, um, this pandemic would not have affected it as it did. We would still have hundreds of thousands of people with us. And, and that's a, a tragedy that over the past months has been really hard for all of us to bear. Do you think that people actually thought, think, that you're like Mike, like calling the, 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 the herd, that they let this happen? I think it might be slightly more benign. Um, calling the herd is kind of harsh, and it's. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I think there are a lot of people, and and we all have heard this. There are a lot of people who have said, "They're old people. They were dying anyway. They had mm -hmm. underlying conditions. What? They're in a facility. What else do they have?" Exactly. I mm. mean, that's the point that I'm, yes. I, I I heard. Yeah. So yeah. many times from my patients' families, then when they say they couldn't see their loved ones during this time, only on FaceTime or yeah. a Zoom type thing or whatever it was. And, you know, walking in after we were allowed back in and seeing, you know, particular f facilities that I would go into, and I would see people who have just deteriorated and aged dramatically in yeah. a short period of time. And I mean, uh, yeah. I, I, it sounds very well, scary what well, you're talking about. It is. It's very scary. I think because we're not out of we're not out of it. Exactly. I mean, um, I just saw all over the news in the past two days um, from the Washington Post to, to everywhere people writing about the fact that um, we now suspect that our vaccines only have a six month efficacy period. Mm. So we're all looking at those vaccines. Um, um, no longer serving their initial uh, uh, purpose. And we still have um, uh, hundreds of thousands of seniors who are basically sitting there waiting for it to come to them. And there have been no changes in the industry whatsoever. And in fact, the situation is worse because so many workers have left nursing homes. Mm -hmm. So many facilities are afraid of lawsuits. And so, you know, their, their kind of stiff reaction to that is always problematic. Um, so I'm, I'm um, not that, not to be the downer here, but I'm pretty alarmed about what the future could hold for this very vulnerable population. You know, your piece on transfer trauma, uh, all your pieces are quite emotional, but to see how they would evict people who, are, who need more care, uh, that was, it's really terrible. Yeah, thank you. Um, that was the, that was um, the first piece that I wrote in the series. And um, I was so fortunate to meet the friend family. Um, 
I mean, we're in Philadelphia, um, the city of brotherly love. I meet this incredible family. They are so good as to let me be in the room with their dying brother Mm -hmm. um, and son. Um, And um, they opened their their hearts and their lives to me, which was um, incredible. Um, As as you know, as as hospice chaplains, that is always um, the real, I think, which of you called it this, maybe Saul the real, um, where we find, um, the end of life is, uh, essentializing mm. and, um, the small things that distract us from the rest of life, the daily schedule fall away. Yes. And, um, we are forced to face, um, embodiment and humanity and ritual and meaning. I am frightened by what you're saying, uh, because I'm seeing it happen out here in the work that I do especially when you start talking about the facilities who have tried very diff- very in recent months very hard to maintain a good place you know what i mean mm-hmm. and now i you know they're they're becoming a little shell shocked and they're kind of like reacting real quickly to to isolate again and i'm just i'm just fearful of what could be going again i mean my mother is one of them and I just worry that something along could come along and, you know, that'll be it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I think I'm often the bearer of bad news. Um, but I think that um, we are better off when we understand what we could be facing, when we're very real and honest with ourselves um, and our legislators about what the challenges are and what should be done. Um, and I'm not an expert in that field. There are incredible advocates all over the country who have been watching the nursing home industry for, for decades and have been saying the same few things. Change these things and we will save lives. Um, and uh, it's very hard to get that message through. I'm afraid that what we did learn from the first, um, from that wave of uh, nursing home infections um, is um, not something that's caused us to change the industry. Well, I went to a facility yesterday, and I was asked, of course, to check in, sign in, and uh, you know, and more or less, you know, sign my life away when I walk in. And when I walked in, I noticed that you ha- we had to go down to the facility of which I was entering, and the administrator was there helping me getting getting organized on this little computer thing. And they have in their organization, which I had no da- idea, I think they're in the. Uh, uh, in the 130 to 160 facilities under this one company. And that just blows me away thinking that, especially when you start talking about corporate greed, I guess you would say, uh, with these, with taking these lives into their hands and they're not taking care of them. Hmm. Yeah. It's not just, it's not just greed. Right. It's I I think it's a systemic problem. So we can say, um, yes, indeed, racism infects our police system around the country. But it's not just racism. It's the Mm -hmm. racism that is built into the system of operations, of attitudes, of culture. And I think in the nursing home industry where we see private equity corporations coming in, they've got experts that are kind of doing, you know, the, the work of of math. They're doing calculations. Like if we have a resident in this bed for this many days before they switch over to 
Medicaid will get this much money. Mm. So it's a it's a it's a systemic problem, and um, it's I think the challenge is not just saying these corporations are greedy um, because they don't have a morality, right? They've replaced mm-hmm. their morality with profit, right? Mm-hmm. The ethical mm-hmm. good is now profit um, yeah. uh, in their eyes, um, and so we have to we have to not expect them to do the right thing. We know that they can't. The system will not do the right thing. It's already yeah. calibrated for money. Hmm. So we have to regulate them. We have to enforce their um, their operations um, to be humane. And I don't see the will anywhere. First of all, in Pennsylvania, um, there was a collapse of a whole string of these facilities. And the state was like, oh, woe is us. We have to take these over and run them until we find a new buyer. Wow. So they don't want to do that. Woe is and, me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a it was a real problem with them. They were like, oh, hey, we, we got to get somebody in here and fast because we are not in the business of running nursing homes. And they're right. But also it just shows those kind of hands off where they don't want to be engaged in the day to day. They're just somebody else take care of it. How do they then regulate them if they don't want to know what's going on? Frankly, they don't really. I mean, we have operational systems. There are regulation, regulatory systems in place, but it's all self-reported. Um, we have an advocacy system, which I think is incredible. There are ombudsmen, as you probably know, right. for nursing facilities, mm-hmm. but those ombudsmen have no teeth, right? Oh, it's not okay. like they can. It's, it's not like they can report a facility and something's going to be done. So mm. the idea that there's an accountability system. Um, it, it does exist, but it has no meaning. Wow. But yet the government will say that we have this available and so therefore use it. Right. But I mean, the government is, um, if I can say so, covering their ass. Let's transition to your book, The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. And, um, you know, death and dying in America is, is kind of, um, there are many factors really that affect it from being good. In fact, in fact, I was studying the hospice history and the original vision of the hospice pioneers is not even being followed right now. But talk to us, what was the motivation for the book for you? Um, well, it's like many people who do this work um, and very much like Joe. Um, I, uh, I lost my father in 2005 and um, I was so angry um, about the process uh, he had had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for about 10 years and in the last three months of his life decided he wanted to go home with hospice and not go through any more experimental treatments. Um, he was tired and he was ready. Um, and you all know when a patient gets to that point. Um, but I was completely unprepared. Um, you, that I was 38 at the time. Um, my sister had two infant children, so I was a single woman, and it's always women that are doing this work, right? Mm. Um, and so I went home to to care for my dad, and it was nothing like what I expected. I realized that our entire media landscape um, uh, fools us into thinking that our loved one will crawl into bed, mm. uh, apparently without any toiletry needs, or <laughs> you know, um, and and you know, no, some there's no need to do laundry or to cook or any of those things. I had, mm. I had no idea. I thought he would crawl into bed and he would tell us he loved us 
and we would like put aside old riffs or, or family baggage. And then he would close his eyes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I got to the age of 38, not knowing that it does not go down like that. And I was very much traumatized by how he died. Um, he had terminal restlessness, so he was very active and we had a hard time keeping it at home. We couldn't get enough morphine to the house, basically, to keep him calm. And so in the last 24 hours of his life, we had to take him to the hospice facility about 45 minutes away. And the whole experience wrecked me. Mm. And I, I got really angry at the nurses and the people around me, even my family members. And after wallowing around in that wreckage for a while, I was like, I've got to figure this out. And so I became a hospice volunteer. Good for you. (laughs) Yeah. I tell everyone, go, go Mm -hmm. volunteer for hospice. I think every doctor should spend, uh, you know, doctor in training should spend one semester in hospice at least. That's Um, how I started in hospice, actually, as a hospice volunteer, but continue. (laughs) I did the the same thing, so. Brilliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I think those of us who have done it, we understand the value. Like, what I haven't been living up until now. I see now what this means, what this embodiment means, what death and dying means. The the culture around me makes so much more sense when I understand, or so much less sense, (laughs) when I understand the truism of mortality. Um, So I learned, and I talked to everyone I could talk to, and, um, and then I was lucky enough to sell the book to Beacon Press, which is this Unitarian Universalists originally in, in founding, mm. um, fabulous editors who were like, yes, let's do this. And it was before the bigger books on death and dying um, of recent um, period, like um, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal and um, uh, When Breath Becomes Air, uh, Kalanithi. Um, those books hadn't really popped yet. And so um, I was very pleased when mine came out because I found that there was a huge hunger around the country. Um, And I spent probably almost two full-time years um, just going from hospice to crazy little organization to um, university uh, to bookstore talking about this book. And some of the chapters that I thought would resonate, like Elders in Prison, Mm. something that I feel very strongly about. And and I spent that time with um, hospice prison programs, which are shocking. You all should look up your nearest and see if they'll take you because it will blow your mind. Uh Um, um, And and there are other chapters where I get into, um, for instance, uh, assisted suicide and its legalization in the United States and around the world. I saw you just had Katie Englehart on Uh um, uh, in recent times. Um, but the, what re- people really wanted to do was talk to me about their own experience. And so for, you know, I'd give a 45 minute talk and then for two hours afterwards, I would just stand with a line of people who would come up to tell me their dying person's story, their loved one's story. And I just took it all in and it was the most, um, the most profound experience I've ever had. Uh, uh, With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. 
It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleil Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Anne. Uh, so what did you find during your time as a hospice volunteer? Oh, um, I found that it was absolutely liberating uh, to find someone, whether they were alone or they had loved ones around them, they still had needs. Um, but to find someone that just wanted to talk to me, they didn't want anything from me. Um, they just needed someone to hear them. And it was, it was both humbling and, and, um, exciting because it was, if we can call it work, it was the kind of work that, um, gave me meaning, gave, gave me a purpose. Um, it, um, and again, in, in a podcast somewhere, I believe one of you um, said that uh, you could you could be whatever that person needed you to be. Yes, yes. Uh, and that was when I figured that out. Um, I write about one of my hospice patients, a, a very wealthy woman who lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and had been a doctor, both a psychiatry uh, psychiatrist, but also a medical doctor, and you know, she just needed me to be there. And I listened to whatever she wanted to do. I read her whatever she wanted, mostly the obituaries. Um, <laughs> I did, you know, and I could just be whatever she needed. Yes. Um, and I don't know if you have this as well, but I've found that those connections are long lasting. Um, just a few weeks ago, her daughter was in town and we had a long day together and um, she brought her new partner with her. And like, I still have relationships with that family. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what else we're supposed to do if it's not to be present for those who are in pain or who are, you know, whether it's physical or existential pain and who are looking at the abyss and they just need someone to be present with them. What else are we here for? And it is powerful to really allow your humanity to touch theirs and theirs touch yours, you know. Mm. Their woundedness touches your woundedness and mm. you find this amazing solidarity and companions in this final stretch of life. Uh, I find it to be an amazing way of being. I, you, you wrote, I read somewhere where you wrote that, you know, you used to think... If you're working in hospice, it must be overwhelming. But you you found a new a new way of seeing it after your time as a volunteer. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, I write in the book. There was one time I was on the elevator going up to the fourth floor. It's called Four Carpus, the hospice facility in um, the hospital where I volunteered, and um, the uh, maternity ward is on the same floor. And the woman next to me in the elevator was complaining, like, what are, what, are, how, why would they, how awful they would put these two on the same floor? And I kind of thought, you know, circle of life, friends. <laughs> like, there we go. That's right, you, exactly. You, you cannot escape it. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. You cannot escape it. 
and it's and it's not depressing, right? No, it's not. Come back to Saul's point. It's not depressing. Yeah. But going back to your uh, the 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 uh, the whole situation of you and and being part of that family again because of what you offered them, uh, the presence, the uh, you're, you were there. You were very much an important part. I, I can't tell you the number of times that I'm walking around in our community, and someone will come and say, "Oh, Joe, Joe, Joe." And I'm looking at them, and I'm, yes, yes, hi, yeah, I'm Joe, yeah. Oh, you you took care of my father, or you took care of my, you know, my mother, whatever it may be. And, of course, I don't remember them, but they certainly remember remember me. And mm-hmm. that's the part of the significant part of all of what we do, uh, because you have made an impression, because you are there. Yeah. Huh. When, when so many um, react to death as though it's something to avoid, you know, um, the families where the... Um, some family members disappear as soon as someone goes to their deathbed. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to come visit. They, I want to remember them as they were. Yes. I think it's because we just don't have the tools in our society to grapple with um, the situation. I mean, if, if we're still calling it depressing, we obviously haven't understood the fact that this is how it's been going for a very long time, and that's not about to change. Um, and it can't be depressing. It is the natural order of things. Um, well, I'm dealing with that right now with a, a 101-year-old woman who is in her in the facility dying. Her daughter-in-law's in. Son does not want to come and visit. Ooh. He will not come and visit. And I just... I, I, I can't put a, a judgment on that because I'm not walking in his shoes or wondering what it is, but I heard the story and I understand what's going on. And uh, I just support the daughter-in-law who's there right now and the mother who's yeah. lying in bed. Yeah. Um, I think there are some situations where it's all about getting that loved one through the dying experience. So in those cases, in part, it's about the patient, right? It's mm-hmm. about the person who's dying. We want to get them through this in the most humane way possible. And sometimes they just want to see their son. Um, but I also think that there are dying loved ones. Um, we, we hope for the deathbed confession. We hope for all those <laughs> rifts and regrets to be mended. Um, and, and they're not going to be sadly. Um, we need to reach those people before they're in their last six months, or, or you know, we need our elders to do that work in advance of a terminal diagnosis. Um, and there are family members who will carry these rifts and slights and griefs and broken hearts for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And that also is a tragedy. And how do we make those two meet? I think it's really talking more openly uh, in our culture and, and understanding kind of the burden um, that we are carrying when we don't have to. It's really simple to call somebody and say, I did the wrong thing however many years ago. Mm. We're here now. Um, I would like to make amends. And, you know, sometimes there can, you can have a proxy who will do that work for you. Uh, But more than anything, I mean, beyond just like the fear of not knowing what's on the other side, more than anything, I see that really, um, as a great challenge for for those who are dying um, and and their family, these these familial rifts um, and slights and 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 bitternesses that no one knows how to get around. Well, that you know, you you, you talked about the patient who had all that uh, terminal restlessness that you. That's her dad. Yeah, your father. My dad. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, 
how much of that, and and Saul will, you know, question that, and and I know he's asked that question before, how much of that is spiritual pain? Oh, absolutely. And we're not, you know, we try to, we try to eliminate it with lorazepam and and morphine Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Ativan, all of that. Um, I think uh, because at the end of life, and I mean, you, you, we're all having this conversation together. I know no more than you. Um, but I think that um, I'm constantly bewildered by the connection between mind and body at the end of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we talk about it in sports. We talk about it in, I don't know, um, the happiness culture, like just smile and you'll be happier. Um, <laughs> but at the end of life, we all know that we've seen patients hold on until their grandchild's birthday or until their anniversary. Um, And the ability um, for physical and existential pain to kind of switch back and forth on that boundary, right? Like what Mm -hmm. is real and what isn't, what is measurable and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And I think toward the end of life, that, that boundary, that, um, what do I mean? That, that ability to quantify which is which um, becomes harder and harder. And yes, I think you're right. I mean, a little disclosure here. Part of the reason my father's death was so difficult was because I wasn't in prayer, uh, prepared, but mm-hmm. also because we had a really awful relationship oh, and, mm. um, and there I was taking care of him, just hoping just you'll take this to your grave. Do not make me carry this around for the rest of my life. Mm. And I never, I never got that. Mm. He never, he never, became vulnerable to me. He never opened up to me at all. Um, and so I have to say that there's something to what you're asking, Joe, but I'm not sure what. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's... And uh, it's, it's, I think uh, hospice may always means well, uh, but sometimes I think we miss the aspect of educating the family mm-hmm. and preparing them uh, beyond giving them the little blue book and uh, <laughs> I think, you know, we fail our educational part of, you know, educating the family on what, you know, what to expect and how to maneuver this, knowing that we are there, but we cannot assume that the family knows. Right. And that's where well, we fail, yeah. Well, part of the problem is the hospice is grossly underutilized. Um, I think we're looking at maybe half of those who die every year are enrolled in hospice, maybe more. Um, but instead of the full six months, their, you know, their, their mean stay, I think is like seven days. So hospitals hold on to them, loved ones hold on to them. And it's only at the moment where no one can handle the situation, either physically or, or, um, you know, medicinally or otherwise that these patients go into hospice. When they do go into hospice early, they tend to be, you know, white, well-educated women who want to control everything, which I, which I totally get being a, a, a white semi-educated woman. Um, but we know that demographic, right. And, and we know how it works out. And so hospice only has so much time to do the work. Um, and I think that's, that's unfortunate. And, um, I mean, I have a whole lot of ideas about how we could change it, but, but that's the situation we're in right Is now. Is that in your next book? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell um, you. I can't tell you the number of times, Anne, that that uh, I've had families come up to me and say, "You know, I wish we would have had you sooner." Every, yeah, almost everyone. Oh yeah, it's it's, it's it's amazing when you see what it is that we've done, what yes. we do to help, and and then they say, oh, 
oh, if we would have had this so much. And, and But the hard part that I found with a lot of, as far as educating, is the, the difficulty for doctors, first off, to acknowledge the fact that their patient is really dying. And the second thing is, and then to, to say then, what, what, why don't you consider hospice? Instead, they'll just say, we either do palliative or let me continue to take care of you, which I think then uh, does not give much credence to what we do. Right. And, and then you got family members who just are in such denial. And that's yeah. tough, too. No. Well, our whole medical culture has been focused on cure. Um, that has been the objective. And they don't really know how to handle things that can't be cured. And, um, and they don't do the warm, touchy-feely very well. There's no training for that in the medical training program now. Um, also, for a long time, doctors, as you well know, um, were not paid for having end-of-life conversations with patients. Yeah. Um, we've oh, seen I the studies of towns that, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, that was the, the death panel stuff. Like, do we cover doctors to, to have these conversations the with patients? Death yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh um, but but also um, but also in medical training, there's you know you can go through your entire residency process and not see a dead body, right? Like yeah. so, if you know, I say this again and again, maybe someone will take me up on it. I just would love to see a, a university, a medical school, require that students spend one semester as hospice volunteers, just to be with family to see what. Um, what it looks like to stay with a body as it declines and, and that person dies and leaves the world. Um, that's a profound lesson. You, you know, the three of us all became different people when we experienced it. That's the um, truth. And mm -hmm. I, I think medical, uh, medical students, but, you know, future doctors would have a very different uh, approach to their practice if they did. I did a clinical pastoral education uh, unit in a hospital. In the last day that we were in class, in session before the, the, the session ended, uh, I had the opportunity to participate and watch in an autopsy. Ah. And I mean, I walked in literally with a garbage can because I thought if I saw this, I'm going to just, you know, lose it. I walked out of there a changed person mm. because I started thinking about this was a living, viable human being the night, the night before, hours before. And now, unfortunately, and excuse my vision here, it was like Christmas turkey being cut up. Yeah. yeah. And I am like, that really gave me a whole different perspective on this whole thing. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I think that's, um, I mean, medical students go through that, right? They, they I do don't that. know if they do or not. They should. Yeah. Um, they should. But um, but I think there's this, you know, the death positivity movement, which is um, a lot of young female morticians and young people who are coming into the death industry. And it was um, hugely popular right around 2016. And, and I think still is in some ways. Um, but it was a, a great focus on kind of Victorian era death practices and, um, and the body, right? The dead body. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw for the longest time that this was a mask, um, because dealing with a corpse 
there's no greater truth than a corpse, right? Exactly. Dealing dealing with a corpse is profound, but it's quite different from dealing with a dying person. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is complex. Yes. Mm-hmm. That is, you're not the just hardest. look. That is the hardest because you have the family, the medicine, the needs, the pain, the the real work, the real work of just keeping the bed clean, you know, just keeping food in that person or not. Um, and, and we all know that that is, that is the aspect of, of dying that we no longer know as, as a culture. We've lost that when death became professionalized, when it, when it moved from, you know, grandma's bed uh, mm-hmm. upstairs mm-hmm. to the kitchen table. Mm. Uh, or, or to, you know, to, you know, when she was laid out on the kitchen table, but prepared by the, the family, yeah. um, that has moved to the hospital or to the hospice facility. And we don't have that knowledge anymore. Just like, you know, if you told me to make my own butter, I wouldn't know how, like we just, it's a skill that we just don't have. And it's the professionalization of the dying process that I think has, has usurped that knowledge. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saul Abam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Anne. In your book, you wrote uh, a good piece about the church's impact uh, in facilitating good death in America. Could you elaborate more on that? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, when you say the church and I say the church, we both mean the mother church, right? The Catholic church. Of course. That has this outsized influence on... Um, on policy, strangely, still, um, because of its alliances these days with evangelical Christians in the United States. Um, but uh, again, my family's Mennonite. I went through catechism in college to become Catholic. So I was a Catholic convert. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and um, and I, it slowly um, became true to me um, as a hospice volunteer, um, as looking at policy, um, that the Catholic Church runs, um, they manage one in five hospital beds in the country. Um, they um, th- and, and they do so according to their own rules, right? Yes. They do so according to the ethical and religious um, directives. Is that right? Am I saying it right? I think the so. Acronym, yes. ER, ERDs, right. Um, and uh, we've seen cases like Terry Schiavo, which um, which changed the way that Catholic churches approached in that situation artificial nutrition and hydration, um, and so we are um, we are missing a big piece of this conversation when we're not discussing the influence that the, the Catholic Church has over the dying process, um, from the spiritual aspects to the nitty gritty of running hospitals and hospices. I didn't know that statistic. About yeah, that's a big I, number. One in five. It's a big number. That's yeah. incredible to think about that and to see the influence it has on, on the care that is given. I mean, I went to a Catholic nursing home at one point in my 
one of my previous uh, hospice experiences. And we had a patient in there who was uh, not eating well. But if you would have seen the volunteers, it would have seen the nurses, it would have seen the aides. I mean, it was disturbing, so disturbing, because this woman really didn't eat all this food that was being shoved in her mouth. And, and it made her uncomfortable. And, oh, my goodness. And, yeah. the, and, the, and the family yeah. were afraid to say anything. Yeah. I think in part that comes from just family and, and food always go together, but also um, the helplessness of family members. They think the mm-hmm. only thing they can do is feed. And we always equate not eating with poor health. Um, and I think in general, we just don't understand what happens in the body as it approaches death. Um, you know, organs begin to shut down and they can no longer process food and water. Um, and I know you talked to Katie Englehart quite a bit about um, voluntary stopping eating and drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first part of this book that I wrote was in 2013. Um, and I was still hung up on the way that the Catholic Church was changing their guidance regarding artificial nutrition and hydration. Um, so the Catholic Church, in the wake of Terry Schiavo, changed their policy that a director of a hospital decides when to remove feeding tubes, not mm. the family, mm. not the patient. Um, and so I wanted to know where else in society patients could be fed against their will. Patients or people could be fed against their will. And, and the only other place I could find was prison. Right. And so I have a chapter that looks at the laws that surround our choices for feeding, um, for eating, how we make decisions about our own body. Um, and so to compare a force-fed prisoner who was on hunger strike in Connecticut mm. to, say, Terry Schiavo, who, um, whose family insisted that she be on this, kept on this feeding tube um, indefinitely, who projected their complicated grief onto this being um, and, and kind of imbued it in this religious and, and moral blanket, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really eye-opening to take those two situations and kind of pull the threads apart um, about, uh, about the role that food plays in our society and when it can be punishment, when it can be torture. Um, hmm. And uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a, a moving chapter. I mean, the guy on Hunger Strike was a very unsavory character. Um, uh, Bill Coleman is his name, and he's now still living and and outside. He's in London, but um, I think he was um, I think he was a very complicated subject to write about. But the situations taught me very much about um, uh, uh, about how we treat human freedom, liberty, rights uh, in different settings. And uh, thank you very much. Anne's book is The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. This is one of the first books, you know, that really talks a lot about this topic of death and dying in America. Please uh, continue to get your copy. Um, how, how, what has changed since you wrote this book about four years ago in the field of dying in America? What has, what, any positive changes? Uh, um. I think there is more conversation um, about death and dying. Um, I think there's more conversation about grief because grief at the moment is inescapable. 
um, we're surrounded by death. Um, it is, it is everywhere. And like all other periods of history, when, when death was the primary medium, um, uh, society has to hold still and, and reassess. I don't know that we're reassessing. I think, mm-hmm. um, these, these throws that we're in this kind of schism between two parties, um, this, um, retreat into untruth, um, this denial that the pandemic is happening at all is probably quite in keeping with historical pandemic experiences. Um, but sadly, grief is all around us. And I'm hoping that um, the way that we bury or, or just attend death um, will be changed by this moment, um, that it will be more in our conversation. Um, I hope that we see the need for um, home health aids. <laughs> Um, we see the need, we see it for daycare, right? For just people who provide care in the home and how profoundly important that is. I think the pandemic has, has greatly highlighted that particularly to women, uh, women who are the sandwich taking care of the children and and the elder parents. Mm. Um, I hope that that translates to the government. Um, I think social services that can, um, change low death rates or inequality of death rates, in our country, um, will, will be addressed. I think it's, it, everything is pronounced right now in, in the most painful way. Um, that said, um, I don't have any, I don't have any signs of those, <laughs> those things <laughs> yet. Um, I think that we're going to face, um, a, a deep reckoning with grief in the future. Um, so far, the only national recognition of all of this horrible, unequal loss has been Joe Biden's few minutes. And otherwise, it's been, you know, a scramble to keep up with the daily news and to, you know, get this administration going. But but the other thing is, um, we have been so myopic as a country. Um, this pandemic will only worsen as long as people are unvaccinated elsewhere. Mm. So we have (laughs) greedily gobbled up like we do all resources as a nation. We have gobbled up all these vaccines instead of going to pharmaceuticals and saying, we rescind your intellectual property laws right now. We rescind your special manufacturing copyrights this is an, a, a, a global emergency and you cannot profit off of this. Mm-hmm. You cannot do in the dark deals with, you know, Ukraine and other countries yeah. to make mm-hmm. your profit off of this. Because as long as there is one case of COVID anywhere in the world, we are all at risk. Yeah. And, and we haven't grappled with that. And I, I think that reckoning is going to come home to us soon. So you also expect a pandemic of grief? Well, I mean, the world is in a pandemic of grief. Um, I think we just haven't realized it yet. You know, the chicken with our head cut off, we're still running down the road. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wow. Uh, What Do you have any questions for us before we conclude? (laughs) Well, I have have compliments. Um, I just um, so appreciate the work that you do. Um, to meet patients where they are and to help them 
articulate what their needs are um, and to reckon with the most profound fact of human life. Um, and so I'm, I very much appreciate both of you. Also, Saul, I just want to say um, your knowledge and experience of death humbles me um, uh, very much. And so I'm delighted to have had this time to be in your company, both of you. Thank you. That was Anne Newman, the author of The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.